So, Mark chapter 11. Quick recap, all the way back to the beginning. Mark writes the account, and he writes the account to um, his friends and the people of Rome to explain to them who Jesus is. Now, right off the bat, he says who Jesus is. He says, this is the account of the Messiah, the Son of God, the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is. He says that right off the bat. But the trick is, is that nobody else in the story initially knows who he is. So it's this interesting literary device he does. And so Mark lets everybody know at the beginning, and it's no ordinary list of things that people think he is. People think he's a teacher. People think he's a prophet. People think, some of the religious people think he's actually, like, full of a demon. There's just so many different, um, uh, I guess, I guess perspectives on who people in the story think Jesus is. And then he presses this claim, like as far as the stories keep going, the stories keep pushing this idea of Jesus having authority, right? Like we learn early on that people are like, wow, this guy can teach. And not just teach, he teaches as if he wrote it. He teaches as if he is in charge of this whole thing. And so there's this weighty presence that Jesus has. And, and here's what happens as the story continues and moves further throughout the account. That weighty presence, that authority, actually begins to press into the reader's lives. And it presses into ours. And so the authority of Jesus, when we get real with this, as followers of Jesus... It, when it begins to press more into my life, um, I begin to have a problem with that. Like, it begins to push into places of my life that are uncomfortable in ways that I don't know how to respond. And so we're going to pick up the story in Mark 11, verse 27. And just so you know, it's Tuesday. This is Tuesday of Passion Week. It's not Tuesday right now, it's Tuesday during this week, okay? It goes like this. They arrived again in Jerusalem while Jesus was walking in the temple courts. The chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do it? So, just a little bit before this, Jesus goes into the temple and starts throwing things around. Okay, then he, then he curses a poor fig tree. <laughs> and there's, we talked about that last week. And, and remember, we talked about the sandwich last week, and it made all of you hungry. And then, like, he, he shows back up at the temple with the disciples. He shows back up, and immediately he's confronted. And some scholars believe that there were 71 people, religious leaders, that showed up. 71 kind of surrounding him in the temple courts. And I think that there was like a show of force, right? Like here's Jesus, he's, he's showing his face again, let's confront him. They show up in mass and they're trying to communicate, hey, we actually run this place. 
this is our, you're on our turf here. And who gives you the right is basically what they're saying. Who do you think you are, right? And so Jesus, doing what he, sorry, doing what he does, he begins to uh, throw the question back at them. See, they're trying to trap him. There's actually this teaching in rabbinic tradition that if somebody shows up with a prophetic message and that person doesn't have authority, meaning they don't have backing from other religious leaders or um, traditions, and that person keeps doing prophetic things, that you can execute that person. This is actually a teaching in the Mishnah. It's, it's kind of like a commentary for the rabbinic tradition. And so they are trying to corner Jesus. They are trying to, um, in a sense, this is like a grand jury. They are trying to push Jesus into a corner. And they are asking him, by what authority do you say these things? And Jesus replies this, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Then he says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. So, we know the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is out there eating locusts, wearing something itchy, and people are flocking to Jesus. People, uh, uh, the Jewish people were flocking out there, and they're sensing something wrong, not only within their hearts, but within their nation, and they are coming to John the Baptist, and the John the Baptist is actually uh, preparing their hearts for the Messiah. And so they're getting baptized, and people are experiencing transformation because of John. Now, this has been, there's tons of people that did this. In fact, it said crowds and crowds of people over weeks and months were doing this. And all of a sudden, we see the story of Jesus showing up where John the Baptist is, and he is baptized as well. And there's this moment where the heavens open, and there's this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You guys remember this story from two years long journey through Mark ago, okay? But this all starts well before John the Baptist. In fact, we get this prophecy out of Malachi that says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So this is this prophetic message 400 years before John the Baptist. And, and, and here's Jesus standing at the temple with these religious leaders questioning him, and he's like, so John the Baptist? You know, remember Malachi? So John the Baptist, you, tell me, like, what was his authority? Where did, where did that come from? And they're confronted with this question about who John the Baptist is. How will they respond? Verse 31, it says, they discussed it amongst themselves. And this is very political of them. And they said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't, you believe me? why didn't you believe him? 
But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So he throws it out there. They decide not to answer. A non-answer is an answer, right, parents? I mean, it is. Jesus' response to their question about authority took them off guard uh, because they are wanting credentials from Jesus. They are wanting to know, you know, what rabbi he studied under, uh, Here's what, you know, I've been a part of. This is why I get to do these things. They want him to build a case for why he is doing the things and saying the things he's saying. But he turns it back around. Jesus is not playing that game. He actually points to the authority that is divine, and they don't know what to say with it. They're, they're stuck, right? They, they try to take the political solution, you know, lick the finger, put it in the air. They're, they're going, okay, if we say John the Baptist was just a human guy, he wasn't divine at all. There are all these people that have experienced healing and repentance through John the Baptist. They were most interested in keeping control, in keeping security, um, and Jesus was not going to let them do that. So what does Jesus do, classic Jesus, what does he do at this point? Well, he tells a story. He actually begins to tell them a parable that will highlight what's actually going on in their hearts. It goes like this. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him. They beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is their heir, this is the heir, Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants who gave uh, and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Interesting here that most of Jesus' parables ended up having to have some kind of a, a follow-up chat with the disciples. You know, like, 
so this is really what this means, you know, and they're like, oh, there's no follow-up chat to this one. This one's pretty clear. I mean, this one's like probably the most intense parable that Jesus tells because it's the least complex. I mean, it's really obvious who certain characters are in this story. Uh, He could have alluded to Psalm 80 or Jeremiah 2 or Ezekiel, but Jesus alludes to this idea of a vineyard that comes out of Isaiah chapter 5. And what's interesting about this idea of a vineyard is they're standing at the gates of the temple, and at the gates of the temple in Jerusalem, the gates of the temple would have been adorned with a whole beautiful uh, gold, uh, kind of in a sense, metalwork thing happening that was a vineyard. The gates of the temple were a vineyard because the people of Israel were the vineyard. That's how God, all throughout Scripture, talks about his people as his vineyard. And what happens is, is Jesus is actually calling to reference in the minds of the teachers of the law that they are vineyard keepers, that they are the tenants, that they are the farmers, that they are renters. They are not owners. And over time, God has sent prophets, one after the other, that have been rejected and beaten and killed. And this is the passage out of Psalm, I mean, sorry, Isaiah, that is a song, a love song to the people of God. Listen to, well, this is a love song, but it's kind of like a, I love you, but I'm mad at you love song. You know those kind of 80s love songs? Goes like this. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Sound familiar? Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is the prophet Isaiah telling the people of Israel that it's almost over. And this is before they're carted off into exile. This is because they had chosen not to be the people that God created them to be. What Jesus is doing here is he's confronting the people who are in charge of shepherding and leading the people of Israel to become the full version of the people of God. And they're not listening. And they're wanting to be owners and not renters. And they knew that story. 
I mean, these are trained, professional, religious people. They knew the story. They, in fact, many of them had studied it, taught it. They probably memorized it. Maybe there was some tattooing going on. I don't know. But they knew this story deeply. And then just picture the fact that there's these grapes on the gate and this this idea that Israel's supposed to be this choice vineyard and that God is the owner. Needless to say, this parable cut deep, like real deep. It it really antagonized them. And they're looking for a way to get him out, to push him over the edge. So, what is it that gives the religious leaders such an intense reaction? Like, what is Jesus doing? Well, I think what he's doing is he's exposing this deep, irrational hatred that they have toward him. And they've had toward him from the beginning. And you just get the sense from the beginning of Mark's account that they don't like him. They hated him. Jesus is, uh, the things he is saying is actually animating the darkest parts of their hearts. And and in this story, this idea of the, they, he sends his beloved son is the same word that, that is used in the beginning of Mark when, when the heavens open up and it says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. pleased. And over and over again, this idea that, that God has sent messengers to the people and they just keep rejecting the messengers. And what's interesting is there's a quote about the cornerstone in the passage that Jesus says of, What's interesting is this whole passage in Psalm 118, we were going to read it today, it's super long, a lot of things to to communicate out of it, but it's the same group, it's the same group of verses that at the beginning of the week when Jesus is coming in in the triumphal entry and people are shouting Hosanna, remember that whole, uh, that word is actually a, a word that says save us, save now, that passage was quoted out of Psalm 118 and just Two or three lines later, it's the idea about the cornerstone. And so some of it, you know, we, we look back on the same people who are shouting, Hosanna, save now, are actually the same people that a few days after this account are actually yelling, crucify him. And it's the same people. And it comes from the same passage of scripture, Psalm 118. And, the, and no matter what God does, it's this idea of the, the owner and the, and the tenant farmers, no matter what God does, they're angry and hostile and bitter back. No matter what God does. And they were not interested, these, these leaders are not interested in the actual truth. They're interested in discovering an answer that would keep them in power, that would keep them in control, that would keep them at the head, at the top. And we do this too. We do this too. See, the other thing that I think Jesus confronted them on was their insatiable desire for power and control. They're servants hired by an owner, but they're acting as if the vineyard actually belongs to them. And this idea of God saying, I've given you so much, but you act like it's yours. And instead of being salt and light, like they're supposed to be, 
um, they've used their power to control others and to put down the outsiders. Remember, the court of Gentiles was supposed to be a place for people who were non-Jews to come and pray to Yahweh, and yet they filled it up with a flea market. And they would rather be owners than stewards, and so would we. And you and I, here's the thing, we get really easily caught up and sucked into this, this idea this, that's in our culture that says that you and I are owners of our lives, that we are the ones that choose our own destiny. But we're tenant farmers, and everything we have is grace. And I would say even much of, uh, of American church teaching has been this idea of uh, follow Jesus, accept Jesus into your life, but, but just see where he fits in, you know? See where, where it works for you. And I got to thinking of this, and, and I remember someone teaching um, something once before, this idea about being a functional atheist. <laughs> This is going to feel good. Um, <laughs> this idea that you and I, uh, I'll speak just me personally, I have this ability of saying things about Jesus, um, of acting uh, in certain kind of religious ways, but when it comes to certain areas of my life, I operate as a functional atheist. Meaning, I act as if God does not exist in certain areas of my life. And so I started thinking about what it is to live a life without God. One of the fathers of atheism is Friedrich Nietzsche. And he is a philosopher. So I'm like, hey, this would be fun. I'll just dive into some philosophy. So this week, I've been kind of reading Nietzsche. And it's been super fun because it's overwhelmingly depressing. But the idea in, in some of Nietzsche's work is, um, here's, I have a lot of respect for him because he was at least an honest atheist. And his atheism, his without godness in his writings played out in such a way um, that he ends up uh, just going mad. He dives into just nihilistic thought, and, and he ends up um, wasting away in an asylum in Turin, Italy. But his main work was this idea of autonomy, human autonomy, and humor, human ownership of our lives. And I thought that, that word ownership struck me because of the tenant farmers wanting to be owners. And as I started reading some of Nietzsche and some of the, the threads that he wrote, um, he had this idea um, about how human beings, each one of us can, can, if we shed this idea of God, if we shed this idea of authority structures in our lives, that you and I can become ubermunch, superman. And that was his whole argument. That was his whole framework. No God, no morality, no transcendent purpose, no right and wrong. 
And, and he played that out in his life. He, I'll give him credit, he, <laughs> he pushed it all the way out. And one of the things he talked about was staring into the abyss. And what ended up happening at the end of his life is the abyss stared into him. And the moment you and I make ourselves owners is the moment everything begins to collapse. And it, the idea of staring into the abyss and the abyss staring right back at us. And so this, this idea that Jesus is pushing at the religious leaders is this. Because there's a sense of darkness in this text. I mean, there's actually a part in this parable that Jesus says that the owner's going to come kill him. Like, whoa. And so there's a heaviness to it. There's a heaviness to what Jesus is saying as far as authority in our lives. But this passage also reveals the, the patience of God, right? What the Bible calls his long suffering. For years and generations, God has longed for and been patient for his people over and over and over again, sending messenger after messenger after messenger. And finally, Jesus, the Messiah, shows up. After every possible path of grace has been exhausted, that owner shows up in his son. And what is so haunting, really, is that these same people standing at the gate with the vineyard overhead before the son of the owner. They take Jesus in just a few days. They beat him. They mock him. They throw him out of the vineyard. And he's killed. And Jesus on the cross does this amazing thing where he forgives them. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And it's that same grace that he offers us over and over and over again. And that this idea of resisting God, we keep saying no to the owner because we still want to be in charge. You and I want to be in charge of our time. We want to be in charge. We want to own. We want to grip our time and our, and our money and our identity and our future plans, and our sexuality, and all that is, is staring into the abyss. And the abyss staring back into us. And what Jesus is offering is life and freedom from the control of being an owner. I love this long quote from Paul David Tripp. He says this, every application of what it means to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be lived out in the context of a great spiritual battle. What is this battle about? It is the great war for the rulership of our hearts. With sin still living inside of us, we are still torn between our love for the claustrophobic little kingdom of self 
and the grand and glorious purpose of the kingdom of God. We are still tempted to want our own way and to write our own rules. We still tend to value comfort and pleasure more than we love redemption. We are tempted to have more excitement in the things of this world than we do with the reality that we have become the children of God. We still complain when sanctifying trials come our way, and we still tend to credit God with faithfulness only when things in our lives seem to be working. This, is, this isn't just one of those passages that you read and go, man, aren't those religious leaders jerks? They don't see it. <laughs> they don't see what they're doing. No, this is us. You and I tend to, by nature of our broken humanity, want to own things, want to control things, want to have complete power in our lives. Where do we try to assert our authority over Jesus's? And a lot of times we do this in a very Christian way. We say things like, well, I'm going to do this, and I just want Jesus to bless it. <laughs> right? That's an easy pit to fall into. Churches do this all the time. We do this all the time as, as communities. And what's interesting is that we're actually, <laughs> we're talking about giving our authority over to Jesus, but, but you know what's wild? He actually ends up giving so much different authority back to us. And this is the part that's such a trip as we finish this out. Because you'll find out, like, just a little bit further, that as he's about to send into heaven, Jesus actually tells his followers, I'm giving you power. I'm giving you authority. Not to do what you want, but to do my will. N.T. Wright says this, if we take the New Testament seriously, it appears that those who follow Jesus are equipped with his spirit are themselves given authority under his direction to act in his name in the world. Have we even begun to consider what this might mean? So it's this like transition, it's like this transition, I'm giving you over control of my life. I'm giving you over ownership of my life. And you're putting me, God, in a place of of of, in a sense, like tenant ownership as well, where I get to do what you want me to do. That's what the freedom is. So it's good news that God has authority over our lives. And if you, have you ever found this to be true? Have you ever experienced these moments of, of giving God over authority in your life? As hard as that is, what area of your life might you need to submit authority back to Jesus. And I, and I find this to be those areas of my life that definitely seem to be going well. Because we love to pat ourselves on the back for being real capable, right? People. Like maybe you're earning more money. Well, I'm doing a really good job at my job and I, I, I've, I've climbed the ladder. Careful, that sounds like ownership. You know, over and over again in our lives, there's places that we, if we're really honest, and this takes the first 36 hours, 
from now, 36 hours from now, to reflect on this and to, to see where there's places maybe that God is, is asking you to give authority back over. Let me throw out a few questions as we, as we close. Is there some possession that you can't let, let go of? Is there a relationship that you're trying to control, a relationship? Is there a call to serve that you are ignoring? Is there an addiction that you refuse to fight? Is there a success that is making you proud? Is there a tradition that you fear losing? Is there someone that you need to forgive? These are all beginning places for us to find out if we are trying to be an owner or a tenant. Let me pray. Father, you are our owner. You are the authority. And you have sent your son to invite us back into that relationship. God, keep us from becoming proud. God, use your spirit in the ways, in the mysterious ways to do surgery in our lives. And typically, God, this is how it typically goes for me that over time I drift. Over time I clutch things even more. Over time I get insecure, I, I feel shame, I do things out of anger and frustration, I do things out of keeping control in my life because I don't like not having it. I make decisions based on security and ease God, we want to be a people that trust you, that give over to you so that we can experience your goodness and freedom. God, show us the places in our life we are living it without you, without God. Show us the places in the life of our church that we are living it without you. God, let us take these words from Jesus so seriously. The one whose scriptures call the lion and the lamb. May we experience your forgiveness May we experience your freedom. And may we re repent of the ways in our life that we've taken control. We pray these things in your name. Amen.